Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 737 with Jennifer Weisop. How do you communicate with your leadership team and how do you communicate with your full staff? And like, you know, do people feel like there's a dialogue and when they raise an issue, it gets addressed or at least they get a response? Um, so for us, we again, this probably goes back to more of that engineering mindset and practices that we had in our you know, big multinational companies, but having weekly management team meetings where we were looking at those numbers and saying, you know, hey, this is what this looks kind of off. We overspent on seafood. What can we do next week to get that cost down? Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Find out why Toast POS is the number one recommended restaurant POS system on Restaurants Unstoppable. If you're going to survive this upcoming recession, you have got to adapt and you can't just adapt. You have to adapt fast. With Toast's cloud-based restaurant POS, your system will update to evolve along with changing industry trends and guest expectations. To learn more, head over to toasttab.com slash unstoppable. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, for a limited time, you will get one month free POS software, three months of free digital ordering tools, and 50% off implementation to ease the impact of COVID-19. This is a value of $1,000, but you've got to use our links. Unstoppables, what is crack And We have such a great episode for you today. I'm actually super psyched for this episode. Jennifer knocked this one out of the park. Seriously, you'll see what I'm talking about when you hit play or when I hit play. But real quick, just a reminder, and you guys are hearing it all the time. I have to remind you to please use the toasttab.com slash unstoppable link. If you go to toast and you interact with their robots or you email them with a question or whatever, if you come onto their radar, not through that link, you won't get the best deal out there. So if you want to get the best deal, which is up to $1,000 worth of incentives, worth of incentives from toast and an additional $1,000 when I share my commission with you, that's up to $2,000. You have to have used that link to make first contact with toast. It's that simple. And then let me know Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com so I can add you to my list to make sure I know where I'm sending that check. Anyway, like I mentioned, Jennifer Weisop kills it in this episode. We talk about how implementing a system early on can help save you from falling into pitfalls, how to develop leaders, and why autonomy is such an important ingredient in that recipe of developing leaders, the value of having multiple incomes under one restaurant family's roof, how Jennifer went about self-financing her own restaurant, key elements to opening a restaurant on a budget. If you have zero prior experience, why you should really consider getting a hiring on or like, like employing a chef slash consultant, the significance of structuring your weekly meetings with a agenda, the importance of a physical presence in your restaurant and open a book communication, all that the, the impact that has on uh, culture, not being in a hurry to scale, be patient, wait for the right opportunities and 
if you do this, you build demand, according to Jennifer, the significance of a change in perspective and what that does to your happiness, not focusing on hiring new people, but retaining the people and promoting the people you already have. And lastly, how to bring the greatness out of your staff. This was such a great episode. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Here it is. And with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Jennifer Weisoft. Are you feeling unstoppable, Jennifer? I am feeling unstoppable today. <laughs> yes, that is what we like to hear. So trained engineers Eric and Jennifer Weisoft had no plans to open a restaurant. That all changed when a friend purchased a property in their community and asked them to run a breakfast restaurant there. They took the challenge head on and leveraged their years of experience with critical thinking in as project man- management or in project management to revitalize the mid-city New Orleans uh, neighborhood in the wake of Hurricane Hurricane Katrina. Twelve years later, they've scaled the Ruby Slipper to 18 locations throughout the Gulf Coast under the brand of Ruby Slipper and Ruby Sunshine. In addition, Jennifer has served on the board of directors of Liberty's Kitchen. The Ruby Slipper has been named one of Forbes Magazine's Inner City 100 for three years. It was also named a a breakout brand by Nation's Restaurant News in 2017. And I cannot wait to dive into your story. With no experience in the restaurant industry prior to opening this and achieving what you've achieved, I have a feeling it's going to be a good one. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? For me, my focus in the restaurant industry is always about the people. Always about If you focus on your people and you put your people first, they'll put your guests first, and ultimately you're going to be successful. Yes. Great way to get this thing started. I don't think we need to dissect that anymore. Pretty straightforward. Uh, Where does your story make sense to start sharing? How how far back do we want to go? Um, I I think people are always interested in that beginning, you know, kind of how did you make that decision? And... Uh, you know, you have to realize this was in a year, you know, kind of about a year or so after Hurricane Katrina. Yep. Our neighborhood had flooded. Um, our house was destroyed. All our neighbors' homes. Everybody was in rebuilding. And in New Orleans, rebuilding, you know, really still continues to this day. Mm. So it's uh, a very long process. Um, there had been this building in the neighborhood that had been blighted and really a nuisance leading up to the hurricane. And then after the hurricane, the owner was finally willing to sell it. We had always told our neighbor who wanted to buy it, like, hey, if you ever get that space, find somebody to open a breakfast restaurant because I like to eat breakfast (laughs) and I want to go eat some breakfast someplace. Um, Well, you know, one of the, I guess, life learnings of Hurricane Katrina was that sometimes the somebody you were looking for had to be yourself because everybody was stretched so thin and really just at the end of their rope. So we, um, my husband's an electrical engineer. I'm a chemical engineer. We both worked in oil and gas in our careers. And we just basically said, like, okay, what, you know, you're an engineer. What are you going to do? You're going to research it. You're going to learn about it. So we went on the internet. We literally subscribed to restaurantowner.com yes. website and got Jim the magazine. Lab, I know. Good friend here of Restaurant Unstoppable. Yes, He's been on the show like, a couple of times. Uh, yeah. Read everything we could. Uh, my husband did all the design and construction, and I did you know, kind of the employee manual and the policies and how do you build a schedule and what do you, what your budget should look like and all that kind of stuff. And so we basically, as engineers, we approached it in the way we'd approach project management and problem solving. I want to get into that real quick, but <laughs> where would, where do you think you would have been without restaurantowner.com? 
Uh, I don't even know where we would have started. Yeah, and um, <laughs> I'm only saying because they've been organically recommended so many times on the show, and they're great people, friends of Restaurant Unstoppable. And I know that they're giving their services away for free right now through September, or maybe it's three months. Um, I'll address this in the closing thoughts, but we'll definitely link to restaurantowner.com because yeah. it's a it's an incredible resource. The resources, yeah. even to this day, you know, we still are members twelve years later, probably thirteen years because we had it for about a year before we actually opened and. It's literally like, hey, how do I write a labor schedule for back of house and how much should I spend? How do I do a sales projection? What's the rule of thumb on how much I should spend in my lease? You yeah. know, and so as engineers, we just basically took all that stuff and we're like, well, if this is what the book says, that's yeah. what we're going to do. And yeah. we just made it all. It's work. an aiming point. It gives <laughs> right. you a clue. It has something right. that it gives you something to aim for. And beyond that, just templates galore. Yeah. So you don't have to go out there and recreate everything. You can plug things into your business that have already been created, spreadsheets, checklists, yep. things of this nature, and make it your own over time and improve upon it to make it custom for your business. But you Absolutely. need a starting point, right? Yeah. Um, thank you for going further into <laughs> yeah. that. It's a great resource. Um, and you start, you started talking, and I just want to mention this. If you guys do use our link in the show notes, you will get that three months free. So make sure you're using our link. I just want to make people, make sure people know that. Um, moving forward, uh, you mentioned that uh, you're taking this engineer approach. Um, can you just break down, like, for some of us who aren't familiar with what that is, so like, what, what does it mean? To, what is the engineer approach? So uh, I guess I would start by saying kind of project management. So saying, you know, what are the things you're trying to accomplish and then breaking them out down into manageable tasks. Okay. So for example, in the design and construction you know, my husband would work on, you know, here's the overall space and who's somebody I can talk to about what's the ratio of dining to kitchen space. And then this is what I want to serve in my kitchen. Who can help me figure out what the layout should be? Um, And then, you know, having checklists that really give you that. If you're going to open on, in our case, it was like May 1st, 2008. How do you back up from that? How many days, weeks, months? When do you need to get insurance in place? When do you need to get a permit? When do you need to... Um, have that contractor hired. And so really going in very much step-by-step in those processes. And then on the other side, you know, where I was doing the operations, it's like, well, you know, what, what should be in an employee manual? What's important policies that you want to have in place? In a lot of instances, because we had both come from fairly, you know, very large multinational companies, we had a high expectation on you know, kind of practices, protocols, behaviors. And so we put those things in place from the beginning. So I think we avoided a lot of pitfalls that people run into because they may not have a policy yeah. around it. So, you know, for, for people coming to work for us, like, what do you mean you have an employee manual? Like, what? you're not even open yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, well, we figured you'd want, like, you yeah. want to know what the parameters are. What and are the they're out there. Right? You're like, you can yeah. get these things. If you're, if you're open, if, even before day one, like, you can get these things. Like, we already mentioned the tools are out there for sure. Um, and, and all, sorry, keep going. Yeah, so then I would say, you know, kind of from an engineering project management standpoint, there's like a weekly cadence of, you know, what do you do on Monday? What do you do on Wednesday? What do you do on Fridays? That lets you know you're on track or you're behind schedule and how you're going to close the gap. So it's really that kind of project management process. Yeah. And then the analytical, just thinking about as you encounter issues, okay, solution A wasn't going to work. I'm not going to let it deter me. Now I need to find 
a plan B or a plan C and try those things until you find a solution that does work. Yeah. The, the words that are coming through my mind right now, and I think it's one of those seven habits of highly effective people start with the end in mind, Yes, right? Start with the end in mind and work backwards. What needs to happen between now and then to get there with a done, the the job done look right. And then you just work backwards and reverse engineer Yeah, easier said than done for sure. But it's definitely the right approach. How long did it take you to, to do that I mean, I, we're kind of getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, like because uh, I, I we haven't really even talked about your career and like the key mentors you had. In, were you happy as as an engineer? Yeah, or? I love my job. I love the company I worked for. I was very successful. Um, I stayed with that company for seven additional years. I saw that when um, and so you know we initially hired a manager, you know, an experienced restaurant manager and all experienced staff. And yeah. then my husband really kind of got in shoulder to shoulder and learned the business. Okay. I worked a schedule where I was off every other Friday. So I'd usually work that Friday that I was off from my primary job. And then I would go in on the weekends as well. Okay. So we both learned the business from the host perspective, the server's perspective, the cook's perspective, the bartender's perspective, you know, and, and could do all of those positions. It was a small 52-seat restaurant. Yeah. I want to break this down a little more, but I'm curious, before we really dive in and start dissecting your business, anybody in your life, uh, mentors, people, I like to say behind every great restaurant is a great person. So I, I, I like to really kind of dissect who had an influence on you and what shaped you into the woman you are today. So reflecting back in your career in engineering, was there one person that kind of gave you these hard skills or... or I would say oh, I was I worked for um, Shell Oil Company, yep. which is you know largest or second largest in the world. And what I would say in that type of environment, you change jobs typically every two to three years. Okay. And I was very fortunate that they were highly focused on developing people, and so particularly if you are identified as a high potential employee, where they thought you know you kind of get up in the ranks over the course of your career. There was really a lot of um, training, mentoring, leadership development, those sorts of things. So while a few people do stand out in the course of that, you know, 16-year career that I had with the company, I would say it was kind of their overall approach to how you develop leaders and, you know, kind of giving people autonomy and challenging them on their weaknesses, but playing to their strengths and you know, that really set me up for success and then gave me the mindset of like, okay, I can figure this out. So the, the, the big takeaways I'm, I'm getting from how to develop a leader is playing to their strengths, challenging their weaknesses, maybe making them more self-aware of mm-hmm. their weaknesses so they can cha- work on know, them, work right? On yeah, them, you or don't, just you be can't. mindful of it right. so they can maybe compensate with somebody else right. who's strong where they're weak. Uh, but why is autonomy so important in that equation? I think because in order to be successful, you ultimately have to be comfortable with failure. So autonomy is what lets you make decisions and fail. And then it doesn't mean you take your toys and go home. It means like, well, okay, I failed that time. What am I going to do differently this time? And how am I going to recover from it? And it builds that resilience. Yeah. What exactly is autonomy? I mean, to me, it was, it's more about, you know, what are the things that you have the authority to make decisions over? And what are you entrusted with from the business perspective? And so therefore, you can take a level of ownership with it 
and make great decisions that are a balance between, you know, kind of what the business needs and wants and, you know, what the team that you might be supporting at yeah. that time needs and wants. When I think of autonomy too, I think it's just free will, the power of free will and being able to make your own decisions and what that does for you emotionally. Right. Uh, because when things do hit the fan, you only have one person to blame. Right. Right. And I think it helps with like, I don't know. That, do you think that plays into it? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Like definitely accountability, a sense of ownership, building that resilience because more, you'll make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes, right? And then yeah. how do it's more about like how do you recover from the mistake? What do you do different next time? And that builds you as a leader. Yeah, and, and if you execute that, you know, and it was your autonomy that got you there. You're in like what does that do for your ego? Right. You you're know? like, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I helped do this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Being seen for what you contribute. So powerful. Um, did I see you? So I know you, you mentioned you're working for Shell. Um, were you, what was it that you, I had notes we in here. We started, uh, my husband and I started flipping houses in, I actually started with a friend of mine before I knew my husband, um, what, what in the late nineties. Late yeah. Okay. And, uh, that was really my first, like dipping my foot into the high risk world of entrepreneurship. Okay. <laughs> um, so I would say if, you know, when you say kind of who's influenced you, my friend uh, that I went into that endeavor with, which was really a way for me to buy a house I could live in and not rent, but I could afford in a neighborhood I felt safe living in, and for her to have an investment property, you know, and kind of starting an LLC and then having tenants and managing the books and all those sorts of things. It was that first step in. And once we did it, we were like, oh, we actually can do this and make money. Okay, let's buy another house. And then, you know, I probably got married by maybe the third house. Okay. And then my husband got involved in the business and, you know, we got a couple other partners that joined us and we used to, we all had jobs. So this was our kind of nights and weekends yeah. back in the heyday of house flipping. Okay. So when I, I think properties some, were cheap. Yeah. There's some definite lessons to pull out yeah. of that. But uh, what was, I had on my mind, you were in food production, right? Like enchiladas and salsa. Is that what I remember seeing in my, my research that you were in, in, in the supply chain or you're producing this or did I... Read that wrong? No. Um, I'm trying to think what you would be, what you would have read. Because in my in my career in Shell, I did um, operations work. I did health, safety, environmental work. Um, and I, I managed like offshore platforms. And my husband worked in the offshore oil field as well. So no um, yeah, encounters no. with th- <laughs> um I did have, you know, so we said at the beginning, I didn't have any, any restaurant experience. And I, I do want to correct that, that. My first job at age 14 back home in New York was at McDonald's. Okay. And I worked at McDonald's for two years. And, um, you know, it's kind of one of those things that I always look back on now and a little bit laugh and say, I actually learned everything I really needed to know about the restaurant business. I learned in those two years because will, yeah. those systems at McDonald's yes. are just so tight. Exactly. And like, that's what they've, that's what they've mastered is, right. is streamline is systems, processes, procedures. So you can learn so much yes. by spending two years at yep. a, 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 a or operation like Fried McDonald's for cashier, sure. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, okay. But I, the other thing that I love about your story, um, is this idea of multiple channels of revenue. And I feel like so many people get into the restaurant industry and they don't have anything else. So you're still working your full-time job. You had that security, that paycheck, that insurance, all these things. And you were flipping houses. So you, you had that other side hustle that you, I mean, were you doing yeah. all three of these things? So at once? my husband had left his job in 2003 to go full-time into house flipping. 
And so he was finding, you know, kind of rundown houses, historic houses, doing, you know, very modern renovations to them and reselling them or renting them out. So he was managing that piece of our lives. I had my full-time job and then we started the restaurant and we were fortunate that first of all, our investment in the restaurant was extremely low um, compared to what it costs us to get into a I restaurant today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and we funded, we self-funded it entirely from the profits that we were making in our real estate business. And so the way that we had approached it, which I think is also a bit of an engineering mindset, was that when we started that house flipping business, we never changed our lifestyle. So we always lived off of my salary and everything else could be reinvested in the businesses. So when we made money on a property, we used that profit to buy two more houses. And then when you made the money from those two houses, you bought four more houses, Mm. right? So similarly, when we decided we were going to go into the restaurant business and we kind of budgeted out, we took money out of that real estate business and invested it to start the new LLC that was the new restaurant business. And we never had to take a loan. And ultimately, that's how we also grew the business. We self-funded yeah. all the way. Why is that? For a long time. Okay. I think now's a good time to take a break to thank our sponsors. We're going to dissect this a little bit more. Did you know Toast is the number one most recommended POS on Restaurant Unstoppable? I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that more than two-thirds of their employees have worked in the restaurant industry. And I'm feeling pretty confident that has something to do with their commission-free online ordering, which is a hot ticket right now, which lets guests easily order directly from restaurants for pickup or contactless delivery to keep revenue flowing during these uncertain times. They even have delivery services, which dispatches local drivers through an on-demand network to keep your community fed and revenue coming. Regardless of the reason why people are recommending Toast, I highly recommend you go check them out during this industry-wide pause. To learn more head to toasttab.com slash unstoppable and because you are restaurant unstoppable listeners for a limited time get one month of free pos software three months of free digital ordering tools and 50 percent off implementation to ease the impact of covid19 this is a value of one thousand dollars one more time that's toasttab.com dot com slash unstoppable you have to use that link to save one thousand dollars we're back and i love what you're dropping on us right now and i think people get into so much trouble uh, in the early days because they don't have those multiple channels of revenue or they go to somebody and they they get all their money from an, an investor and then you're just tied like you have this person like it becomes an obligation a liability right that you have to this person and then they might want and if you don't have a good sponsorship or not sponsorship partnership agreement, you know, it just gets weird. Right. So why is this, in your opinion, is, is this the best approach? Maybe you don't think it is the best approach, but it, do you think it's the best approach? I, I think for us, it was one of the things that really made us successful. And it was the learning we had had partners in our real estate business originally. And what we learned over time, while we're still friends with those people, you are aspirations and you know kind of how you want to run the business what do you want to do with the money the profits etc will inevitably change Mm -hmm. over time because people have lots of other things going on in their lives right and so as those ideas ebb and flow you won't all be aligned or you won't be as aligned as you were on day one necessarily 
So when we were going into the restaurant business, you know, we were really clear that we wanted it to just be us. And we also, we never intended to build beyond that first location. So for us, it was, you know, this is what we're going to invest. We're going to open this one restaurant. We hope that it breaks even. That was our financial goal going into the business. And we were, uh, on, on an operating standpoint, we were in the black in week one. Nice. Of course, we had a... Uh, investment we had to pay back, but we paid back that investment to ourselves, I think, in about 12 to 18 months. So you pay back the investment to yourself. So you had one company that you're essentially getting the money from. Are you tracking all this money? Was yeah. This like so a we loan? basically like we pulled the profit out of the one company yeah. and then that you funded the second company with. So yeah. were you doing this as if it wasn't like just... I'm sure you're tracking this money. You're accounting for it. Like, wh- how are you moving this money around in a way that is, I guess, professional? Right. For so lack of a in both term. in both Proper. companies, they're LLCs, and yep. so as the partners in an LLC, we already paid taxes on that. It doesn't matter whether you take the money out or not. If you make profit, right? If you have earnings, you pay taxes on that. So we could have theoretically taken the money out at any point, but you do have to represent. Um, like a, a capital withdrawal. And so from a tax standpoint, your CPA or your bookkeeper will help you represent, you know, this is how much equity I have in this business. Well, let's just say I took about 150000 out. I'm taking this 150000 of equity out of that business. And now I'm starting this other business with 150000 of equity. And so it's really represented kind of on the balance sheet side. Okay. Um is this like vertical integration? Are you making a profit on that loan? Is one business no, profiting? Or is, okay. No, because we didn't consider it a loan. We basically considered it like us withdrawing our capital from one and then using it to self-fund another one. Got you. So when I say paid ourselves back, I mean it in the mental space of how long does it take for you to earn enough profit in this business that you've now... To regain your loss. Regained what you invested in okay. it, right? And I, you know, a lot of companies work on a three-year return on investment ROI is is kind of a typical, you know, that's a solid, good performance. Um, In the case of that first restaurant, you know, it was paid back very quickly. So were you just mentally tracking? No, we didn't actually take the money. Okay, okay. We kept the money there because we didn't know what we wanted to do with it. Did you actually pay back your other company? Because, I mean, I would have, if there's like some kind of tax benefit or something like that. No, we didn't need it at the other company. Got you. But again, just the idea of multiple multiple channels of revenue, Mm -hmm. uh, starting where you can, and you kind of, it sounds like you got a sweetheart deal. Like, what was the initial investment? Was it only 150000 It was about 150000 because we had to do the build out. Okay. So the build out of the building was the most expensive, you know, and then of course there's like the furniture, the fixtures, what was the, the equipment. Um, Before? It, was it just empty? It was a corner store, like oh. a little convenience store that was in the neighborhood, um, kind of on a side street in our neighborhood. And um, they, you know, sold like drinks and snacks and yeah. uh, sandwiches, okay. that kind of stuff. So I had a counter? Yep. And how much of that original footprint was there when you guys opened your spot? So we kept, in terms of the footprint, we kept it all. We didn't modify the footprint, but we did um, add a wall to separate the kit. You know, we had to build out the bathrooms and add the wall to uh, separate our kitchen from the dining area and then refinish the floors. My husband... um, he was uh, essentially he always everybody was redoing their houses and so he's constantly driving around and he'd whenever he'd see like really good wood that somebody had pulled out of their house <laughs> he'd be throwing it at my house my backyard used to be 
uh, full of junk. <laughs> um, but like he did those floors with floorboards he salvaged that someone else was throwing out from Katrina and he salvaged these like fire historic fireplace mantles that he brought in as part of the decor and then he salvaged what we call um, barge board um, which is you know kind of the the wood that they built the inside of walls of houses and he built the bar out of that so there was all these really cool like salvage wood elements that came out of other houses in our neighborhood that were being like reconstructed from so the flood you can do it on a budget yes you know? and my husband did most of the work <laughs> yeah. right so like what are some of the key takeaways some of the key lessons you can share with us on how to do it on a budget the first piece is have a budget, yeah. <laughs> right? Like start with a budget and know. Again, starting at the end of mind. You, right. Like, like if you have. say, I want to repay this in three years, you have to know your numbers. So if your goal is to pay yourself back in three years or to, to meet back what that investment was, you have to know, like, are you going to take a salary or not? Are you going to hire a salaried person? What, you know, what approximately is going to be your labor spend? What's approximately going to be your food spend? And then how are you projecting your sales by knowing, you know, some competitors? What's a reasonable versus of like, what are you going to do in sales on a Tuesday versus a Sunday in the breakfast and brunch business? Um, and then being handy and having skills always helps. So since my husband had been doing all these uh, renovations, he was highly skilled to be able to kind of manage the project. So he, he could manage the electrician and manage the plumber and, um, you know, work with the folks who were putting in the hood and, yeah. you know, putting in the equipment and things like that. So it, it definitely makes it much more affordable when you're closely managing the project and you're really also watching, are you getting what you paid for? Right. And so I think that's a, a, a situation a lot of times that people are in if they do have a full-time job and they're they're trying to build something like this on the side is like you're not always there to put your eyes on it and you really have to have a very firm schedule of meeting with that contractor making sure that they're doing the work to the specs that they agreed to and they're giving you the product that you paid for ultimately awesome i love this i really do um and you mentioned that you were working full-time you're and you're probably spending what was like three days a week you said you'd all i'd spend Fridays? yeah i'd spend like a Friday and then sometime on the weekends. Okay. You know, kind of half day. We didn't have any kids yet at the time. So, <laughs> and your, you said your dad or your husband was uh, full time in the restaurant, correct? Yeah. He was still flipping houses until uh, about four years in. Finally, at about when we opened the third restaurant or we were about to open the third restaurant was when I finally had the, uh, the sit him down and have the talk. Like you really have to be here all full yeah, time. So this is now like, it's a business. So now is, it's for real. Yeah. This is kind of one of the things I'm like, I'm, right. I'm trying to get into. You guys were able to open a restaurant with a, basically two full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, how do you go about like how how do you do that without living in your your business? You hear people saying like, "Oh, the, the first year you're going to be there sixty hours yeah. a week. You were there maybe thirty hours a week, <laughs> right?" right? So, I would say a couple specific things. One, which was a recommendation we got from we didn't have a lot of friends who are in the restaurant industry, but we had a few, and we definitely went to them with a lot of questions. And one here in New Orleans who worked for a very well known single. Um, location of an upscale restaurant with a very well-known chef. He um, gave us some great advice, which was open five days a week, at least initially. And this particular restaurant that he worked for still was only five days a week after decades. Um, You know, and he said, things break. Having those two days when you're, you you have that downtime (laughs) and you can get away from your business and like everybody's off is really going to help you keep your 
mental space clear. And so we started five days a week. And I feel like it was at least a year, if not almost two years before we expanded to six days and then eventually expanded to seven days. But I guess what I'm, what else do you need other than if you're not there, what needs to be there? to You have to to have, you know, like a highly qualified people to help you. So for example, with us, neither of us is a chef Mm -hmm. or has a culinary background. We like to eat a lot. So we knew what we wanted on the menu. We just didn't know how to say, these are the things we want to eat. How do I actually turn this into a recipe and a spec and execute it in a kitchen? So we did hire a basically like a a kitchen chef consultant who helped us take those ideas we had written on paper and develop them into, you know, this is what the original menu is going to look like. Uh, We eventually hired that person to be the restaurant manager much more like kitchen focused, but my husband was there when my husband was there. He's usually, you know, kind of in the front of house. So, um, they work hand in hand and things didn't work out long term with that individual. It was probably, you know, five or six months after we opened that we parted ways. Um, and then we hired the next person. We were really looking for somebody who had really strong front of house experience as well from the, you know, guest experience and guest service side. So is this, do you think you were able to find people that you could lean on like this because of the time, do you think the timing was right? Because in 2008, 9, 10, was there a lot of opportunity because people were out of a lot of work? Was it easier to find Yeah, people? it was very, it was, I definitely do not feel like we had the hiring struggles. Um, there also was not a lot of breakfast brunch focused restaurants at that time. We were really on the kind of front end of that curve, which is of course very popular yeah. right now. And there's a lot of competitors in the space, but we were much more on that front end. And so it's a very attractive schedule for a lot of experienced hospitality folks who are, you know, they've just got burnt out on those late nights and being away from their family, you know, particularly you get to that age where they have a family and the family has a more traditional, you know, weekday nine to five schedule and they're missing it. Um, this schedule is very attractive. So I felt like in our first several restaurants, we always got, you know, really solid, generally got really solid managers and hourly staff because they wanted that daytime life experience that makes sense um and i feel like we've been tiptoeing around it uh but you've mentioned like a few times uh, the significance of systems and processes Mm -hmm. procedures uh what do we need to know about implementing those how do we know those things are being done when we're not there right so i would say the first thing is having them right so having them be written down you know so when you're in the back of house it's about you know, what are your uh, recipe specs and how do you check that people follow them? You know, are they doing prep lists? Are they, um, you know, prep to shelf life? What are the pars you need on a Saturday versus a Tuesday? Um, those are the things that in this case, like the chef consultant helped us really develop. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the front of house, it's all about, you know, the steps of service. So in that first batch of people that we hired, um, we had several highly experienced servers who came from another breakfast concept that was, um, you know, kind of across town from us. And they really stepped in and said, you know, hey, this is what we suggest that we put in place. So we kind of put in that, you know, we trained everybody together following some steps of service that were, um, you know, I guess the way I would always describe it is like, 
elevated casual dining. We want people to feel like they're getting that, you know, very comfortable, very familiar experience. We want them to, you know, we want the server to know their name. We want them to know what they want to eat, what they want to drink and that sort of stuff and have that rapport with the guest. Um, but we want to give them like a great food experience side of that as well. Okay. So take, you know, take that level of care in the food so that it's not diner food. You know, the differentiation yeah. of like, this is not a diner. Yeah. So what was it like? Um, well, before we get into that, reflecting back at that first two years, you said it took about two years until one of you was there more full time, right? Until you Yeah, it was really expanding. almost four years before my husband was 100% full time. Yeah. Anything like reflecting back at that time, knowing what you know now that you would have done differently if you had known it then? I think the... I don't know that I would have done anything different in those early years because the person that we brought in um, who kind of took that operational leadership role was really highly skilled. Um, unfortunately, that person stayed with us for, he, he left and then came back to us and ultimately, you know, worked for us for eight or nine years. And unfortunately there was um, a pretty negative falling out oh, that no. occurred subsequently that, um, probably lends a lot to, you know, kind of life lessons is just how much you should entrust someone with your business. Like you still have to keep no matter what, you really have to always know your own numbers and always, you know, really monitor and make sure that, you know, your team knows they still work for you and that you, you know, you are ultimately the one that they feel the connection with. So never let yourself get so disconnected from the business that, somebody else can kind of undermine your position and relationship to the staff. Okay. So what checks and balances can we put in place to make sure that we're tracking and keeping our thumb on the financials and all these things? So I think there's really, you know, it's kind of back to that idea of what are the, what I usually call like routine and standard work. So what are the things you do? How do you write your calendar that you live your work life by that says like, every morning I look at these numbers or every evening I look at these numbers and I read this end of shift report and I ask these questions, you eventually could get to a size like we did where I couldn't look at every shift report every day. And that was probably around eight to 10 restaurants. Then, you know, my brain was going to explode. Um, but really knowing, you know, in those instances, like my husband signed every single check up until about a year and a half ago. So when you're the one signing the checks, you know who the checks are going to, you know, there's no funny business, you know, like, hey, this amount for this vendor seems out of line. Why is this bill so high this week? Those sorts of things. Um, So there's, you know, having those routines, really looking at like your, for us, we used prime cost as our real tracking measure. And so we put that in place very early on where we had a prime cost goal and we had our manager's input and track in an Excel spreadsheet. That was a template that I got from restaurantowner.com that, um, you know, what was their labor and what was their, um, food cost spend. So prime cost for anybody who, who doesn't know is your total expenses for food, right? And your total expenses for labor, right? It's your two biggest levers that you actually have some level of control over, right? Like you can't control your rent. Once you sign that lease, once you sign for insurance, it is what it is. Um, there's other things that are controllable but at a lesser level, like utilities. But 
food cost and labor cost are the two levers that you can really move around influence. and move the yeah. dial influence um, in order to run a successful business. Got you. Uh, so you're tracking your prime cost. Um, what, on a what? daily basis, we're tracking basis. prime cost and, and then really like meeting and discussing it on a weekly basis once we had multiple restaurants. Got it. Um, I'm loving this conversation, yeah. but you're getting into like the nitty gritty, the details, and this is the stuff we love. Uh, anything we haven't discussed up to two or three locations um, that would be of value to our listeners before pressing forward. I think the other thing, even at one location that adds a lot of value and that helped to build our culture is, you know, one is presence. So it's really about leadership presence. And are you there? Do your people know you and do you know your people? And secondly, how do you communicate with your leadership team and how do you communicate with your full staff and like you know do people feel like there's a dialogue and when they raise an issue it gets addressed or at least they get a response um so for us we again this probably goes back to more of that engineering mindset and practices that we had in our you know big multinational companies but having weekly management team meetings where we were looking at those numbers and saying you know hey this is what this looks kind of off. We overspent on seafood. What can we do next week to get that cost down? So you would share your numbers with your team? With the managers, yes. Um, and like how, in what depth would you share those numbers? Like how much of those numbers would you share with them? We what? would, for us, we would really look at the details of that. Um, not the full profit and loss statement because, you know, they didn't need to know what the insurance costs were, things like that, that they couldn't have control. Okay. But really around like that food, those labor costs, even utilities where... If suddenly the water bill went up, you know, you found there's a, a faucet dripping. Hey, look, this by not spending a hundred bucks on a plumber to fix this faucet, we spent three hundred dollars on water. Yeah, and making people aware of things like that, or like you know, having your simple things like having your thermostats on a program and running a timed program, so you're not air conditioning your building when nobody's in there. Exactly. So, um, th- you know, those are some of the practices, and then really in that meeting focusing on people. So, you know, you have to look at the numbers. You always have to look at the numbers, but but ultimately like where are you at with your staffing and do you have somebody you're having an issue with and what's the issue? How are you working through it? Um, maybe you're seeing business grow. You need to hire another cook or two more servers or whatever it might be. Or somebody brought up an idea of like, hey, we could add this cocktail or hey, we can add this menu item. Talking through those. So just having a really routine set meeting with a small agenda to keep you on track. Okay. I'm happy you mentioned the small agenda um, because it feels, I feel like you could probably give us some advice on how to conduct an efficient meeting. Like what does that look like? Cause I feel like meetings, we can get lost in meetings. Sometimes we just end up having a meeting for like every little thing. We end up having like five meetings a week, you know, and it, do you, what's the best approach to meetings in your opinion? So I think it's really about focus. I mean, my personal preference, I love meetings that are, less than an hour ideally is like 30 to 45 minutes. And so, and people have to know what's expected in the meeting ahead of time so that they come prepared So have an agenda, right? You have an agenda. It should be a pretty consistent, like I would call it a standing agenda, right? It has maybe three or four bullet points for us. We work around the concept of like four P's. So the, the bullet points we always focus on are people, profit, PR and marketing, and place and places either growth or repairs and maintenance. It's the building. Do we get mentioned in that PR yeah. meeting by any chance? <laughs> <Yeah>. Nice. <laughs> so, so when you, if you have like, and as an example, those four things, and when you're talking about profit and you're in the restaurant level, you're talking about, Hey, 
your target for hourly labor was 16%, but you ran 18%. Let's look at what we could do to change the schedule next week to, you know, it's usually slicing off 15 minutes here and there. It's not cutting a whole person. Yeah. Um, and so helping to like mentor and coach your team to make those efficiency yeah. tweaks that are going to get you there. And what's the power when you get people weighing in, when you get all these minds adding to the common goal, like what happens? I'm assuming, I don't want to make too many assumptions, but it sounds like there's a way in opportunity here from your team. Yeah. So for us, you know, initially it was a very small team, then, you know, two locations, three locations, we would all meet together. Uh, so they would have their own meeting for their restaurant. And then, you know, once a week we'd have kind of a, a group meeting with just like the highest level yeah. managers. Um, I think for us, one of the really critical collaborative pieces that came up was always about best practices. When somebody was really good at running labor as an example and that person can share not the the real tactics like hey what i do is on tuesdays and wednesdays and thursdays i don't bring the dishwasher until an hour later and that saves me you know 30 bucks in the week and yeah. ultimately on my weekdays that's helping my labor by this much um it's it's those small tactics that are specific that people can really wrap their minds around that will make them make the change versus their, you know, kind of leader who's just telling them like, Hey, go figure it out. Yeah. And again, those, the, the model to your meetings, and I think this is great. You had the four P's people, profit, PR, and marketing, which is one. And then what was the, the last and one? Place, and which place. is like repairs and maintenance. And in our case, growth, cause we have new places yeah. that we started growing towards. Right. Yeah. And so that would be, you know, kind of things we'd focus on. And then we actually, the way we did, we do our meetings, we rotate that theme. So it's like week one of the month is people and week two is PR and week three is uh, profit and week four is place. And so a different person owns each of those meetings as we grew, right? So ultimately we have an HR director and they own people and we have a CFO and she owns the profit one. And so they come to that meeting prepared. At the restaurant level, it's smaller, but you know if they're going to have a conversation about profit, which is really looking at sales versus expenses, the kitchen manager has to come prepared to know how did I run on back of house labor this week? How did we do versus our sales projections? The GM has to be able to say, this is what we projected last week versus what we did. And this is what I'm projecting for next week. And this is why. So I need you to make these changes in your schedule, or I need you to up your ordering pars, or I need you to really cut back because we overordered in this area and we have plenty of product that's going to get us for the next three days. I love this. I'm loving the detail. Thank you so much. Uh, You can't, I I hope you know that I'm smiling underneath (laughs) this mask right now. Uh, So, so again, I think this is like the kind of things that go back to being an engineer because in, in the engineering world, it's all about the details Mm -hmm. and you get into the details and you help people understand why the details matter. Exactly. And they compound all those details compound for sure. So what was that trend? The one thing, the the one thing I really want to talk about is this transition during this time you went to your full-time job to being full-time at the restaurant. Was that an awkward transition? Did you, Dude. Yeah, it was. So that happened right as we opened our fifth restaurant location. So at that time, we had four restaurants in New Orleans, and we opened our fifth location in Pensacola, Florida, in downtown Pensacola, in a really, you know, very nice revitalized downtown area. And that How was long our of a drive, was that? For it's you? three hours, okay. door to door, three hours. And so for us, it was that, like, let's test this concept. So, few things, you know, we knew that in the world of kind of post-Katrina New Orleans, 
there was a whole lot of love for this city that came from not just all over the country, but all over the world. And a lot of people came to visit and they came to spend money and they came to, you know, kind of see the rebirth of this city. And so we had been highly successful in those four locations in a way that was like, there was no charts that were going to tell you this is how you were going to do. And so a, a piece of us always said like, is this just because, you know, there's so many tourists that visit New Orleans and we've had this, you know, real influx of money post Katrina and we're on the front of this breakfast and brunch curve. That's, you know, kind of a big rising segment. And do people in other places drink mimosas at 7 a.m.? Because we don't know the answer to that. We only know what happens in New Orleans. So we chose Pensacola kind of as our test market to say, is this a concept that that we should continue to grow? And it was a place we wanted to go visit. That's how we picked it. It was like, where do I want to spend time if it's not going to be here? And I kind of drew like a three-hour driving radius, and Pensacola was the best place in that radius. Yeah. So real quick, as far as scaling goes, you mentioned at the very beginning of the episode that you had no intention, or we mentioned you had no intention to even open one restaurant, but it kind of the opportunity presented itself. You had no ex, you know, intention to scale that one location <laughs> right. either. What changed that made you want to scale this thing? I, I would say it was maybe the, the lore of the success. Like the okay. first location did so well. We received so many accolades. We had you know, so many regulars who just really loved, like we had become part of their family and part of their like family routine and their life. And we, um, when people did have a complaint and, and if you kind of go back to that time frame is kind of the, the early days of Yelp. Right. And so, you know, I'm like learning about Twitter and learning about Yelp and, you know, reading every review and getting really upset when it's not four or five stars and taking everything personally. But inevitably, most reviews that had anything negative mentioned the long wait. So uh. as we you know, kind of got started within you know, two or three months, we had 45 to 60 minute waits outside the restaurant all day Saturday, all day Sunday. And it was a little bit like a party while people were waiting outside. Yeah. And you know, kind of being on the wait became part of the experience. But it wasn't anything we had anticipated. We had no idea that there would be this overwhelming, you know, kind of support and followers and fans and all that. So people would always say, when are you going to open the next one? When are you going to open the next one? And we'd kind of laugh. You know, we had a young, uh, a young child at the time. It's like, yeah, I don't really know if, you know, we really want to do that. And then, you know, my husband starts looking for real estate and he, he's like one of the luckiest people I've ever met. He stumbles upon this great piece of real estate that's in Craigslist and was like a complete steal from the rent standpoint. It was already a restaurant that had failed. And so we, we, were, we went in and renovated it for about $60,000. Was it turnkey as far as like the equipment and things? Yes, needed? everything. I mean, we did about $60,000 worth of work and some new equipment because the equipment was pretty in pretty bad shape, um, a lot of it. But I think um, my GM there we opened that one in December 2010. So we're in our 10th year. year. Uh, yeah. Two years after the first location. So we're almost at year 10 now. We just passed year nine or at nine and a half. Um, right before uh, COVID started, she told me that um, the last cooler, the very last cooler that was original to when we took that building over <laughs> in 2010, finally bit okay. the dust and had to get replaced. <laughs> so that was a really good investment. And that, that like $60,000 investment is our highest 
revenue, highest profitability, highest flow through restaurant and wow. we have in the company. And I think the, there's an underlying lesson there that like you don't need to be chomping at the bit to expand. Like if you have something good, be patient, mm-hmm. like, look at the market and when you have the right opportunity, like don't rush. Like, like right. if you got something good going on, like there's no rush to to get it out there I yeah like and again like it was building the demand so then yeah. we opened that second location it was a big deal people so, were like finally you opened a second location well that was my next question was this second location like um, as far as strategic location wise like how far was it from your original it's about two miles from the original and it's um the Ruby Slipper that most people know because it's in downtown New Orleans a block off of Canal Street and this is the one that was shut down for a while because of the collapsed building, right? No, no. that's uh, that's on Canal Street itself, and those two are about six blocks apart oh, okay. from each other. Okay. So the so, one on Canal is our fourth location. So, so this one we call it a magazine. Yeah. It's like 200 Magazine Street in downtown New Orleans, and um, you know it's kind of a block off the main thoroughfare, and became really popular particularly with tourists because there's a ton of hotels there and it's kind of on the way to the convention center. So I guess what I was going with this is a lot of people would be afraid of cannibalizing their own business by putting some restaurants so Mm -hmm. close to each other. But it sounds like you were probably losing business because people didn't want to stay in San Juan. So like because you had so much demand in that community at two miles apart, you can service more people and I don't. I don't always. It, it kind of reminds me of um, P. Terry's in Austin, Texas. That was. They were literally like opening restaurants, like right, like not too far from each other. Because sometimes people just literally don't want to cross a bridge. They don't go right. over the other There's side. There's like of the natural bridge. boundaries exactly. in people's mind. Um, so yeah, that's interesting. So as far as scaling beyond two to three locations, you start going to four and five and six. How did your business start to change, and how did you evolve with that change? We can pause here. If you, no, I was just going to say, then our third restaurant's like a mile and a half from that second restaurant. We right? ended up building four restaurants within like two miles of each other. Was it centrific or centric? Centri- Centrifugal force, yes. Or, no, I think it's like centrifugal circles or something. Yeah. Or centered circles, the idea of concentric. like... Concentric. Concentric yes. circles, thank you. When scaling, like but like hyper-focused right. and slowly yeah. scaling out. Yeah. Uh, growth comes from the inside out. Right. So as you start to fragment yourself early on, like it's harder to like have that same presence in all those locations, right? Yeah. But you finally did kind of get outside your bubble with Pensacola. And so we went to Pensacola and at that time, you know, it was kind of clear to me that the business was getting big enough that one person, my husband couldn't run the business alone. So either we were going to have to hire a higher level person to help him run the business or I should go help him run the business. Um, At that time, it just so happened was when the oil price really tanked in 2015. And so I was uh, very lucky to have the opportunity to raise my hand and voluntarily leave Shell after 16 years and get a really nice package that helped me on my way. And so um, that helped make the transition much better. But, you know, kind of where you started the question from, you know, was it a difficult or awkward transition? It really was, you know, I, I, I did not want to come run this business. That was not my life's dream. Yeah. And I really loved the job that I had and, and what I saw as my career trajectory there. And, um, so I was probably, you know, kind of pouting about it for, six, 12, maybe even 18 months of just like, uh, you know, it's really interesting. I think about it often. Um, I think I changed my perspective and I, you know, I found that, you know, I'd wake up some days and be like, well, this is where I am. So what am I going to do to make the best of it? 
And I don't know that the people around me would have said like, yeah, you didn't like coming to work, but um, I felt like it was kind of a duty, like an I have to do versus an I want to do. And I had had this really exciting career and I loved the people I worked with. And now it's like, oh my God, now I'm responsible for all these people and they have all these issues and I have to find this, help them find solutions. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of challenges in the restaurant industry, yeah, right? Absolutely. A lot of balls to keep in the air. Um, but I'll tell you that one of my real big life and career learnings was that when I told myself finally, like, you need to get over this, this is where you are and we're either going to decide to build this business or we're going to get out of this business because sitting here and being unhappy about being in this business is not helping anybody. Um, when I changed that perspective, it was like suddenly I fell in love with it. Yeah. And I, I really like, I kind of took these blinders off that I had put on and saw like, wow, I have these really great team of people who work for me and they're really amazing and they're interesting people. And like, they have these great ideas. And if I can listen to them more and collaborate more with them, they ultimately want to make my life easier and better, yeah. right? So that. stop fighting it. And so, you know, it was probably, like I said, it was somewhere like 6, 12, 18 months later that I really changed my perspective. And I think that was also, you know, and my husband and I were like, we can really grow this business. Yeah. So, you know, 2015 to 2016, we opened one restaurant in 2016 which was in Orange Beach, Alabama. So about the same driving distance so as Pensacola. six locations total. Yep, six locations. Then there was a couple opportunities that presented themselves in 2017. And when we decided like, yeah, we're going to do this in 2017, we actually opened three restaurants in 2017. But the one is the building that we're in now, which was a replacement for our original location, which the lease was running out. Um, we were at the 10 years of our lease and we did not have a renewal. So that's another learning. We would never sign a lease for less than 20 years now, you know, yeah. with options at least, with options equaling 20 years. So, you know, we had to move locations. So we opened three restaurants in 2017, and then we kind of got on track and did three in 2018. And then uh, 2019, I think we opened four. Yeah. That sounds about right. Five, almost five. Okay. So <laughs> what has been the biggest challenge, um, in scaling, uh, hiring people. Yeah. That I, I would say that everything else significantly pales in comparison to how, um, strained the job market is in hospitality right yeah. now. It's just so many restaurants is such an explosion of restaurants and, you know, people really dining out. Um, I think that's going to change a bit as we're coming out of COVID. We're seeing a lot of bankruptcies and closures and, you know, really unfortunate situations. Yeah. But uh, there's going to be a period where if you survive this, it's going to be good. Yeah. Um, it'll be easier to hire really yeah. top quality people. But I, I think the explosion that's going to come. Yeah. But right once now, it's, recover, it's the hardest be... it's ever been right now. Harder yeah. than it's ever been oh in gosh. our 12 years. Yeah. You know, I can only imagine. Yeah. Um, Real quick, the subject before COVID, like what were your best practices for finding and retaining and getting good people? I personally think that the some of the most of the best people we have were brought in at lower levels and grown to the mm. positions that they're in. Yes, um, and using referrals, really relying on your high performing internal people to recommend other high performers that they've worked with elsewhere because. 
you know, most people don't want to put their name on the line unless they know someone's going to yeah. perform, right? Yeah. And they know what they like about your culture and working for you. And they, I think, can then assess, like, would this other person be a good fit and also, like, working for this company? Birds of the same feather flock together, yeah, like exactly. they say, right? So how is being a part of Liberty's Kitchen serve you? Because I know that they, I'm assuming that you probably have gotten a lot of great folks from their program. Yeah, so um, we, you know, Liberty's Kitchen grew up in this same neighborhood as um, we are our home office and based and, you know, kind of got our start, mid-city New Orleans. And... Put a stop there real quick. If you guys aren't familiar with Liberty's Kitchen, go back to my episode with Dennis uh, Bagneris. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. Uh, great episode, what they're doing over there at Liberty Kitchen. Sorry, I just wanted to let people yeah, know. Yeah, so Liberty's Kitchen, um, you know, kind of got their start here in New Orleans. They're one of uh, a couple of these um, kind of social. Nonprofit uh, focused restaurant training entities, but with a cafe front. Mm-hmm. And so, um, we one of uh, one of my you know kind of original general managers um, is the one who connected us with them. You know, and said, "Hey, like here, they're a resource. We could be hiring people coming out of this program. We should talk to them." Connected us, and then you know that initial you know kind of conversational discussion grew into at that time we already had i think three three if not four locations grew into you know hey we could actually become part of their training process so for a period of time um we were one of their key externs so people in like week six of their program or whatever it might have been i'm just throwing out week six as an example would come spend two weeks in our restaurant they'd pick a position and then we would guarantee like we could find a location to put them in and so we'd have the chance to work with the individuals for a couple of weeks then they'd go back and finish their program and you know they could say if they were interested in working for us and we could say if we were interested in having them work with us and so we you know over time hired many people in a lot of cases you know they didn't last and stay long term because they had other aspirations but they needed this was like their first stepping stone in some cases uh, they've had folks who went on to culinary school and you know come and work more in like fine dining and things like that or who uh, probably one of our, um, you know, kind of highest potential Liberty's Kitchen hires, he ended up, um, after not having a high school diploma, you know, one of the things that they do is help them get their GED. So he had his GED. He worked for us. We, we had him kind of on a path to move him um, into a leadership position. He opted to go to college. He went and got a college degree. He now works back for Liberty's Kitchen in a programming awesome. position and helps train other Uh, students who are coming through and what's interesting about their program is it's aimed at you know kind of uh disadvantaged youth or distressed youth in that kind of 16 to 24 years old typically don't have their high school diploma um a lot of times will have you know lots of different life challenges whether from you know kind of their home background or other things and they really help work through all aspects of their life and what those barriers are that keep them from being successful. Yeah. And then really give them like the kind of the social worker type support. Yeah. Of like what do you need to know? And I kind of feel like maybe this is like out of place, uh, easier said than done. Uh, but I feel like that's almost like all of our responsibilities as mm-hmm. business, as business owners. It's not just transactional, but right. Like, we have a obligation. We're hiring young people to, to give them more than just do your job skills. Right. You know, like to, to show them how to bounce you right. know, a P and L and to like 
all these like little things are like like they we we should teach them as much as what we know as, right. as possible. And you know? you know, even in some instances, one of the things that that I learned from working with that program for so many years, um, we continue to work with them, is that the things that we were learning by working with Liberty's Kitchen students and graduates were valuable lessons that we could also use with our regularly recruited employees because they're, you know, some of the same challenges, like the person who's chronically 15 minutes late, you know, have you sat down and actually had a conversation where you understand that the bus comes every hour, they can either come to work 45 minutes early or they can come to work 15 minutes late. Why don't we reach a negotiation, a compromise that says what's the right time that they should get there and it just takes the dialogue to understand, like, hey, this is something that's outside their control. They take public transit. Yeah. How do we work through that? Absolutely. I love this. Um, before we go to the speed round, uh, I want to pick your – I shouldn't use that expression, pick your brand. Some people really don't like it. The more I hear it, the more I don't like it. But I use it anyway. Um, what? Are, how are you handling COVID-19? Not so much how you handled it, but how you plan to handle it going forward. How you plan to adapt and adopt, like, you know, to – uh, change your business to be able to best move forward? So I think some of the key things really around like the health and safety protocols that we've put in place are going to be with us for a long time, right? And so we have to just make those the business norm and the expectation and get away from an idea that this is just temporary. Um, you know, having socially distanced seating, I don't think is going to go away anytime soon. So if we were to open a new restaurant and design a new restaurant, you have to have that design in mind. I think um, smaller table sizes, right? A lot of states have limits on how big the parties can be, where in the past we might have built areas that were designed to house, you know, 25 or 30 people or very large tables. That's probably not the reality that we're going to be in for at least the next year to 18 months. Um how how much space you give to like the bar and bar seating, which in many locations is not allowed right now, um, and how you instead use that as normal seating. I think outdoor seating has become such high demand, and rightfully so. And so really being thoughtful and very specific on, you know, how much outdoor seating do you need and what are you going to invest to make those outdoor spaces as welcoming and comfortable and part of that guest experience right now it's a bit of an afterthought because it's add-on yeah far beyond what we had had in our restaurants before but as we get the opportunity you know how do you beautify them how do you make sure you know you put the fans you put the music you put the plants in all the sort of stuff that makes that guest experience the way that we spend you know money decorating and designing our interiors i think we have to spend on much larger exteriors now. So I think those are some of the key things. And then really um, the level of, of kind of interaction that we have to have with employees and make sure that they understand that what the symptoms are, that they really cannot come to work with these symptoms. If they start to experience them, they need to leave and, you know, wearing masks, wearing face coverings, 
they're so critical to maintain the health and safety of your employees and your guest base. And so I think many of those things, you know, will be with us for a long time. Yeah. Thank you for getting into that. And thank you for sharing so much great advice during this conversation. I've had a blast. Uh, one question I'm asking all my guests before going to the speed round is the, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. So how have you personally transformed over this 12 years now? Or is it eight since 2008, 12 years, 12 years yeah. now? How have I personally transformed? Um, I would say that, first of all, I love this industry now. That's a big transformation for me. You know, I kind of got into it as something to do for my community and never really thought of it as, you know, kind of what was it doing for me personally as a leader. And, and now I'm so focused on, you know, how do you develop a great team and how do you help people see the greatness that they have in them that they often don't see for themselves and like how do you bring those things out and that's what really that's why I get up in the morning that's why I come to work it's it's really all about the staff and the staff then making those guests happy so how do you bring that out how do you let people see what greatness they have I think it's about like really good communication and helping people, you know, having what, you know, maybe are sometimes hard conversations and pointing out, you know, when maybe something, somebody's doing something that's not giving them a great uh, perspective from their employees standpoint or where they could have approached the situation differently and kind of talking through how could you do it different next time. Um, it's, I guess it, to me, it also goes really goes back to like knowing your people. So one of the things that I pride myself on as terms of, you know, how I've developed as a leader is and as I've been very focused in growth that I never want this place to feel cookie cutter. I want every one of these locations and these management teams and staff to feel special and unique as they are and, you know, kind of to fit into their neighborhoods and feel like a really cool spot and be from a guest perspective. It's their neighborhood breakfast and brunch restaurant. It's not some mega chain or, you know, kind of not getting corporatized. Um, And so we consciously work towards that because that's not the way I want it to feel. And I, you know, I don't want to feel that way. Um, But I think one of the things that ties into that is that I really focus on knowing all of my employees names Mm. and like actually talking to them. So So when I come into the restaurant and I see somebody that I haven't met before, I just have this really crazy trick. I introduce myself. (laughs) It's (laughs) like, man, if you just actually say, hi, I'm Jennifer. Um, I haven't met you before. What's your name? And you know, how long you've been here? Where'd you come from before? And that's great. And I, you know, I have a lot of tricks on how I remember people's names because, you know, pre-COVID we had, you know, just over 600 employees. And um, I certainly can't remember everyone's name, like just (laughs) off the top of my head. But I I, uh, remember a very high percentage of them. I have some tricks to remember the rest. So Um, I've loved this conversation, Jennifer. We're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. What up, Unstoppable? So I am using my own ad space to spread awareness about Restaurant Unstoppable Network. This is basically what everyone's been telling me to do as long as I've had this podcast. Eric, you need to start getting more intentional with your content and putting out resources and tools and courses and workshops and really filtering through all the biggest lessons you've learned and organizing them and sharing them with people. That's where this is all going to live. But the the way I'm doing it is basically live. So in 700 plus interviews with some really incredible restaurant owners and experts out there who are just the best of the best, the people I've come across in my organic conversations, the people that are being recommended to me, the people 
of all those people, the cream of the crop is who I'm going back to over the next who knows how long for as far as I can see into the future. And I'm going to be doing one workshop a week, reconnecting with these people and basically shining a light on the path to success in the restaurant industry. We're going to take a bunch of different perspectives because there's no one way to do it. So every week, if you want to join us live for a workshop with me in my network and a whole list of other restaurant unstoppable listeners, people who are going through the same processes as you are, if you want to connect with these people and hold each other accountable and have a support group. This is where it is. Restaurant Unstoppable Network. Head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com. We're back. And the first question I have for you is, what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? I am a world-class sleeper. Nice. <laughs> what's, what's a good night's sleep look like for you? Seven to eight hours. I love it. Um, <laughs> what time do you wake up? Uh, five, between 5 and 6 a.m. Yeah, get to bed early. Yeah, I have a coffee rule that goes with that. I never drink coffee afternoon. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is your biggest weakness? I'm opinionated. Mm. I have, you know, I'm a definitely, I'm a New Yorker by, uh, that's where I grew up and I'm uh, definitely, my New York can come out sometimes. <laughs> what is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're building a team? Adaptability okay. and a really great attitude. Nice. Uh, what is your biggest challenge today? Hiring people. How are you overcoming it? Yeah, two pounding. I know pounding <laughs> the pavement. You know, our team is just everybody. It's all hands on deck, and everybody's a recruiter. Everybody's um, got their networks out there. It's really difficult. Do you right have? Now. Do you offer incentives if you if you have an employee who we do? You? We have referral bonuses. Nice. Um, right now, we have some pay incentives related to back a house. Um, we're paying all of our back a house employees. Um, all our cooks twenty dollars an hour, and our dishwashers fifteen an hour. Well, for referrals though. Oh, for referrals, we typically pay. You know, might be like a hundred dollars nice. up to like two fifty, depending on the market. That's a great deal for like a uh, you know an eighteen, yeah. seventeen, nineteen year old. Like yep. that's awesome. Yep. Um, all right. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. It's a core value, a way to be, a way to act. Gracious. Gracious. What is graciousness to you? So to me, it's about giving other people grace and recognizing that while we want to show up with our best selves, we don't always and we don't know what other people's story is. So, you know, kind of giving people a little more benefit of the doubt, Uh, our coworkers, our guests, um, instead of like kind of jumping to that mode where you get defensive or you're upset about something and we have a saying in the south that helps really um kind of goes hand in hand with being gracious when you're not feeling gracious which is bless your heart (laughs) (laughs) what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your staff so this is something that's common with within the four walls of your restaurants to go above and beyond but not common throughout the industry so we have um, one of our you know, kind of core value concepts that's called Lanyap. Lanyap is a Creole uh, French word, and it means a little something extra. Mm. And so for us, we have this idea of Lanyap, and we talk about it both from a, how we treat each other, 
and from how we treat the guests. So, for example, if you told us it was your birthday, we might, and, you know, you ordered some pancakes, we might turn those into a stack of birthday cake pancakes for you. I love it. Uh, What is one book that's a must-read to make us a better person or restaurant owner? Ooh, I don't read a lot of um, business books that are about restaurants, but I think probably uh, Danny Meyer's Setting the Table is my favorite. What is your non-restaurant favorite book? My current favorite book is Glennon Doyle's Untamed, and I think it's a must-read for women and women leaders. What was the big takeaway from that book? Um, that women have a tendency to conform ourselves to many other people's expectations for our entire lives. And it often takes us to, you know, kind of into our 40s to realize just how much we constrain ourselves and how life changing it can be for ourselves and for people around us if we actually put ourselves first a bit more. And how we can show up as better people to everybody else by doing that. Great stuff. What is one um, thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Really talk to their staff and really understand, you know, kind of what it's like on the front line. Um, You know, I personally think it's really important to spend time in your business but don't be so in your business that you can't work on your business. I love it. Uh, share one service you've outsourced to a, co- a company that's doing something better than you could ever do it in house that you outsource to do that thing. I would say one of the things that I felt has been most important to outsource is food safety and sanitation auditing. And um, we've used a few different companies over the years. Uh, we currently use Steratech. But really having that outside set of eyes that comes and tells you how are you doing compared to other restaurants. It holds your staff accountable in an area where you really have zero room for error. Exactly. But we move so fast in restaurants that, you know, there are small problems that can compound over time. And so really having and we know in a lot of markets, health inspectors do not do the level of detail that we need them to. And so, you know, using that third party means that in all five states that I operate, I, I have every restaurant held to the same standard and I can compare them to each other. Beautiful. Uh, what is one technology you've adopted within your restaurant that's had a huge impact on operations, communications, efficient, efficient, wow, I'm struggling to tell this is my last interview of the <laughs> yes. week. Uh, uh, efficiency is what I was trying to say. Anything along those lines. Yeah. So we're, uh, as engineers, we are very technology, um, Focus. We love technology and we are early adopters. Um, I would say what it's currently called the Yelp wait list, but it used to be no wait yep. when it was independent. We were the first adopter of no wait in New Orleans um, way back when we opened our second restaurant. So this was you know, eight years ago or yeah. something. Um, and I think that wait list process um, has been really a game changer for us in uh, particularly as popular as our restaurants are during peak times and like letting people have that flexibility to get on the list from home or from their hotel or while they're in the car. And it's really been particularly now in COVID where you don't want a lot of people congregating and waiting together, Yeah, you know, having them on the list and being able to communicate to them through the text is really helpful. Nice. Um, and this is actually, we're going to start asking a new question. I'm gonna do my best to start asking it. It's actually a question from my man Casey over here. Uh, what is one nonprofit 
that you are really excited about that you want to create more awareness of or a, a nonprofit you partner with? We already talked about the Liberty's Kitchen. Is there another one or is there one you want to put more oh, emphasis on yeah. that? Well, so I, um, I'm a big believer in giving back to the community. Um, aside from serving on the board at Liberty's Kitchen, I also served on the board for my children's public charter school for several years. Um, I spend a lot of time and where I can donate money, um, you know, kind of into education is that's really my big thing. I think that's kind of the life changing, game changing in uh, most cities, but especially in New Orleans. And so, um, you know, anything, Liberty's Kitchen is kind of that beautiful intersection of the two things I'm passionate about now, which is restaurants and education. And, you know, they're really focused on that. So um, I think they do a great job. Uh, with both of those things. So I love it. And this is the last question. It's a doozy. Get ready for it. If you got the news, you're leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work and your restaurants would be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you can leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three pieces of wisdom be? It's always and only about the people. (laughs) Um, The early bird does catch the worm. I, I believe in that. So <laughs> and and uh, we're early bird. We're, you know, we're early folks. And, and keep the balance. You have to ha- be in a good mental space to show up and be the leader that your team needs them to be. And that it. means you have to have time outside your business as well. Jennifer, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for coming on to share your story, your knowledge, and your mentorship. We wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. So who's one person you respect and admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? If they were on the show, you would listen to it. Oh my goodness. Oh, that's a tough one. You um, can mention more if you can't think of just one. <laughs> um, I really, uh, there's so many great New Orleans restaurateurs and chefs. Um, one that really interests me is... Um, Nina Compton, who yes. is a amazing chef and um, one top chef, in fact, and she and her husband, Larry Miller, own a couple of restaurants here in New Orleans. Um, and I, I kind of know them as acquaintances, but I would love to know more about their story. Well, your wish is um, been answered. We got her on the show <laughs> oh, yesterday, awesome. so we'll be sure to let you know when that goes live. That's exciting. Um, thank you so much. Uh, if we wanted to connect, maybe come join your team. I know you're expanding throughout uh, the Gulf area. What's the best way to connect? Uh, the best way to connect with us is um, on social at Ruby Slipper Cafe or at Ruby Sunshine Brunch and our websites, rubyslippercafe.com and rubysunshine.com. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Jennifer, Thank for coming you. on the show. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. We'll cut it there. Awesome job. See, I told you that was such a great episode. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge. I think the big takeaways for me in today's chat were scaling slow was one of them for sure. You know, starting where you can and scaling slow and how if you choose to scale slow and it's so obvious in the story that they chose to put their energy into the details, into the culture, into the systems, into the processes and into their people. And when you do that and you put the energy in, then you burst at the seams and you get to the point where you 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 have to expand because you're about to explode, where your people are growing, your, your customer base is growing. There's lines out the door and demand will increase. And when you 
your your people will let you know when it's time to grow. Um, and I mean, that was the big takeaway for me. Uh, so many little nuggets in today's chat, uh, like communication and autonomy and open book management. Just so much. I mean, I don't know where to, where to start. It was just such a great episode. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Before we say goodbye, a couple things. I just want to remind you that we're popping off Restaurant Unstoppable Network. That is going to be where my best relationships live. So all the people who have made the biggest impact on me in my 700 plus interviews, I'm going to go back after them. I'm going to try to get them into this network. I'm going to invite my network to this group. And this is also where the most loyal and passionate Restaurant Unstoppable listeners are going to be living. So the people that are going through the process of opening their restaurant right now who want to get the support of me and other people who are passionate about being successful. That's where we're all hanging out. That's where the conversation is. We're going to be having live workshops once a week. I'm going to be making myself available once a week for a book club where we're going to be reading the books of the authors that I'm scheduling to get on the show. So when they're on the show, you, you'll be familiar with them. You'll you'll love their work. You'll get to be able to join us for those workshops to ask your questions live on the show. And I'll be making myself just available during um, random office hours during the week so we can connect and help you guys achieve your goals and it's going to be awesome and um our first workshop is with re Weinswag from zingerman's we're actually supposed to record that today uh this week on wednesday but uh we had to postpone it to next week because of the hurricane i don't want to risk losing power so re is going to be coming to talk to us about visioning and how to vision and the, the the importance and significance a solid vision a vision of greatness has on your business that's what we're going to be talking about and to give you an example of the power of visioning and how impactful visioning can be, uh, I want to use this opportunity uh, to say thank you and, and goodbye to our good friend, Casey, who will not be helping us uh, in the same way we intended uh, with Restaurant Unstoppable. Basically, the power of visioning. So Casey and I were talking, we were visioning, and we realized we came to an agreement that our vision for the business was not exactly the same, and the vision for ourselves and our roles in that business weren't exactly the same. So this is what happens when you take the time to get intentional to say, this is where I want to be. This is what I want my life to look like. And you share that with other people. You know when you mismatch. You know when you're unaligned. And you can get off the bus. You can say, this isn't where I want to go. That's what visioning does. It's so powerful. And because of that, Casey and I know that you know we don't want to go in the same place. We save each other a lot of time. We save each other a lot of money. We save each other a lot of headache. And we're amicable because of it. We, we are still considering each other friends. So that's the power of visioning. If you want to learn more about the power of visioning, go get a lapsed anarchist approach to building a great business. It's chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. And Ari has a bunch of workshops too that we'll tell you about uh, during that, that uh, live workshop over at Zing Train, where he teaches everything he's learned in business. And you use prom- if you use promotional code, don't stop. You'll save 20% on all those courses. But make sure you join us live in the network to talk with Ari and to learn about visioning. And I just want to say one more time before I go, I want to say thank you so much to Casey because Casey was the kick in the ass I needed. I don't know if I would have been where I am right now today in this moment working towards building this this network and taking Restaurant Unstoppable to the next level if I didn't have Casey kicking me in the ass and giving me the confidence and the, uh, I don't know, just the hope and the desire the passion to to do something great again and to 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 evolve and pivot myself and if i didn't have a casey pushing me if i didn't have other people that were on the bus that people i had to look out for then i don't think i would have gotten the energy i needed to to take this leap of faith so thank you so much casey for having uh hope in me 
And uh, thank you so much for everything you did to contribute towards this goal to creating Restaurant Unstoppable Net- Network. I couldn't have done it without you, man. Just thank you. And, all right, and that's it for today, guys. Thank you so much for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.